0: Anyone remember my rumination on the Royale over in TNG Season 2? Now, I stand by my statement that that is a bad episode. But I will also freely admit, and I don't remember if I said this in the rumination, but I definitely said this in the uh, wrap-up video we did a few months ago, that it was enjoyable. And I mean, that's the thing, right? Sometimes there's episodes which aren't particularly good, but you still enjoy for whatever reason. This is one of the reasons why, when we did that wrap-up video, I was asking for your most watched and your least watched, rather than best and worst, because an episode like this is actually an episode I've rewatched many times, even though it's not actually all that great. I mean, it's not bad. It's it's certainly not to the level of direct that I could mention, and it's certainly a, I'd say, an average quality for season two, which you know, it could, it, it, assuming season two is actually of good quality. Just interesting to think about. This was. Uh... This is the first time... So we got another first. Actually, we have a couple firsts in this one. This is the first time that no new music was recorded for a Star Trek episode. Every episode prior to now has had at least one musical pit for it that was composed for that specific scene. In this episode, it is all pre-recorded stuff, all re-rendered stuff, which is going to be a very recurring trend, especially in Season 3 when the budget issue got to the point of effectively being a crisis. Uh, Robert Block uh, wrote this one. He also wrote... What, little, what a little girl's made of, and cat's paw. <laughs> but you can kind of see his style in all three of these, sort of out there fantastical elements that are tied into a more, well, I don't know how to phrase this, more fantasy than sci fi. Now, I myself have argued many times that the line between those two is a lot grayer than some people seem to think, and most, I, I tend to think that there's nothing that prevents sci fi from being fantasy and vice versa. However,. There is a stylistic approach variance, which certainly seemed to be present, compared to, say, Hard Science and Lord of the Rings. It's actually a bad example. Uh, let's go with Harry Potter. It's a much more soft soft fantasy. Pevney directed this one, and you could tell because, well, I'll get to it later, but he does some good stuff. Also, this episode has John Fielder in it, which I'll admit has to be at least part of why I enjoy this episode. John Fielder is the guy who plays uh, the commissioner dude. He he plays Red Jack. He plays the demon. And Piglet. That has never stopped being funny to me. Ever ever since I first realized that that was him, I was just like, oh my god, that's Piglet! I mean, he's actually done several other things. You may or may not recognize him in a bit role in Emperor's New Groove, a Disney film. But no, he's Piglet, and he's awesome, and he does a surprisingly good job in this episode, but I don't want to jump the gun on that too much. They brought in an actual belly dancer in order to portray the belly dancer at the beginning of the episode. And what's funny is, according to the account here, they were like, here's some makeup, no, here's some makeup, no, here's some makeup. And the director, that would be Pevney, kept saying, less makeup, less makeup, less makeup. Until finally she just had standard makeup on, and he was like, yes, that, that's what we're going with. I also hope you enjoy this episode, because this is one of two Scotty episodes. Uh, unless we count relics, which would expand that number to a whopping three, or unless we count TAS, which I do not. Anyways, so how, here we have a hedonist society. Am I the only one quietly terrified by that idea? We find out later that the Argelians actually hire outside people in order to run their affairs. Which makes sense. Uh, People who are hedonistic in general are probably not going to be all that great at being administrators or janitors or plumbing experts or all the things necessary to make a society run, right? So, okay. That also means they have to have some kind of wealth and prestige necessary to be able to afford that and to get the workers to go there in order to do that. This is also explained in the episode, if you're paying attention, because this is the only major port in the Quadrant. This is back before they'd really codified terms. What he probably means is sector. This is probably the only real major port in this sector. Which also means there's probably a huge amount of trade that goes through here, which can lead to a whole lot of possibilities. So I'm kind of with this. This is surprisingly good world building for this place. But I still find the idea of a hedonistic society kind of terrifying in its own right, because that is a massive... I don't know what to call it. It's it's like a, a piece... It's... it's flimsy. It's so flimsy. It would be so easy for it to fall apart in either direction. Either to be, embrace total hedonism and go the Warhammer 40k route, hello Slanesh, or to go to, to, to fall apart and just be like ah, and descend into you know more violence or barbarism because they're not really capable of dealing with it. They could also be conquered pretty easily, too, if you think about it. I'm pretty sure the Klingons could just walk up and be like, hi! And that would pretty much be that. Just, just interesting things to think about. There's also Morla there. Uh, He's, of course, glare, 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 and wanders off. That is the definition of a red herring, by the way. But I I hate to give that away early, but these are ruminations. I assume you've already seen the episode. So, as you know, we have to remember that Scotty has just gone through some stuff which has led to total resentment towards women. Yep, I feel that. I remember this one time uh, when I... uh, Let's see, what's a traumatic event that happened in my... Well, no... Scotty doesn't really go through a traumatic event. He just had a dangerous situation where things almost went bad. So let's see. Why don't we borrow something from, I don't know, last episode? And Scotty nearly ended up losing his captain and his friend and could almost barely manage to make this happen because his captain insisted he stay behind and therefore he now has total resentment of men because of that incident. Like it's dumb is what I'm trying to say. This is a really Really dumb plot point. For all the praise I give the script, this aspect of the script is nonsense. The idea of actually resenting 50% of a population because of an almost incident that was caused by a member of that population. Well, we have a word for that. Nevertheless, this then leads to the fact that their solution for this is to take him to a club. We're going to call it that. And then offer to take him to, well, actually, they don't end up doing that. McCoy and uh, Kirk actually want to go to another club where the women are even more. And he never actually finishes the sentence. What I love is that McCoy actually knows the place. Because of course he does. McCoy, well, he had the touch, you know what I mean? He, he was more of a player than Kirk was. I, I'm dead serious about that. I should have been keeping track. I'm pretty sure McCoy has actually hit on more women than Kirk has at this point, And I think that's going to be a trend going forwards. Yeah. Anyways, so then, oh my God, she's been stabbed twelve freaking times. Now I happen to still have my box opening knife here because it's the same day as as the last time, so you know my boxes are still there. You with me, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Excessive, isn't it? Keep in mind, one is generally sufficient, three is conclusive, twelve is insane. And that's exactly why I did that physical demonstration just now, to show off just how nuts it is to have 12 slices, or excuse me, 12 stabs in one go, especially in the brief period of time that it happens. It does actually do a very good job of getting across just how diseased the murderer is. And we're, of course, supposed to think that it's Scotty or random guy who wanders off. Now, this is another thing the episode does well. The mystery is actually surprisingly well-constructed. So anybody who doesn't know the show they're looking like, "Oh my god, maybe it is Scotty" because they don't know who Scotty is. Anybody who has seen the show, they know that's not Scotty. It's got to be it's got to be the other guy. And and the whole, you know, thing is as a red herring. <laughs> then the episode expands upon that a little bit and mentions that Scotty does not remember what happened and several times mentions by his own admission he might be the one who did it. He might be guilty, but not uh oh they they phrase it beautifully. He might be guilty of the crime but innocent of the intent, I, I think is how is how I would phrase that. That's not how they say it. They say it some other way, which is much more eloquent than my stupid words. So you could see how it kind of builds up that idea, and of course Marlo Morla, who wandered off. He's he. You notice they pull the typical mystery trick: introduce, then forget, and that's usually the actual suspect. So they do this with Morla, and then they don't bring him back until about the halfway point of the episode. Let me move on. <clears throat> So then, uh, this is what I mentioned, the Argelius hires off world thing. Jarvis shows up, as played by Landru, apparently after he killed himself and, and ended up not really managing to make the society work, he decided to come here and work as an administrator on a planet entirely devoted towards love. Now, that's obviously a joke, it's just the same actor, but I want you to really think about it for a second. Think about Landru and what it was after. You know, the whole everyone must be unified and in harmony. No peace, you know, no war, excuse me, nothing but peace. Now think about Argelius. Really. Lines up, don't it? Anyways. <clears throat> Anyways. So they decide, you know, Jarvis, Javis, Jarvis? Jarvis actually threatens to close the port. It's interesting, the political pressure in the background here. I kind of wish they'd mentioned the Klingon so we could keep that recurring subplot of you know, the Truman Doctrine going. But anyways, they mentioned closing the port and how that would be terrifying. Admittedly, that is probably a bluff. That is, that is political posturing. If they closed the port, they would be screwed. Where are they going to get resources and personnel and, and everything they need to keep their society functioning? It would be like a city saying, yeah, we're not going to interact with anyone outside the city anymore. Except it wouldn't because planets aren't cities. But that's how Star Trek treats it, so that's how we're going to treat it. I am presuming that they need imports off-planet to really keep the planet functioning. Since we do know they import labor and services, you know, as as in, uh, what do they call it? I can't remember what it's called. High... I can't think of the word. There's low blank work and high blank work, and I hate that term. But, you know, low blank work is something like working as a janitor or a a trash collector or a farmhand, whereas high blank work is working in, like, the tech industry or a surgeon or something like that. I'm really drawing a blank on this. I'm sure there will be plenty of blank fill-ins in the comments, because I'm just cursing myself today. But the point is, it's already mentioned that they hire from both ends of the blue spectrum in order to keep their society going. How do you think that's going to handle if they close the port? The catch is, of course, nobody else wants the port to be closed either. So there's a... it is That's why I say it's political posturing. It's like, oh, I'm totally going to do this thing that's going to injure me if you don't fix it. And you're going to try and fix it because it's going to injure you just as much. Or possibly even more. Anywho... So they decide, okay, let's deal with this. I want to comment on something here. What is with science fiction and mental powers? I've never understood that. I feel like there's some historical thing, and I've never studied it properly, like, to figure out where they came from. In fact, I feel like I've brought this up before in Star Trek. Because there's this weird trend to just sort of say that psychic abilities or mental powers or empathic abilities or psionics are totally legit sci-fi. Whereas magic, or superpowers, are more fantasy. Why? I've never understood that distinction. Uh, Anyways, I just wanted to bring that up because this is uh, instigation number 738 of someone who has mental powers on this show, including Spock, who's a regular. So they bring in the empath, and she will be able to read. She'll do a seance. She'll do an honest-to-God seance in order to figure out what's going on. Sure. This is also what I wanted to comment on. Well, actually, let's let's hold that off. There's this bit where they go off and they bring down Lieutenant. Oh, what's her name? I wrote down her name. Lieutenant Tracy. And then Lieutenant Tracy goes to do the readings, and then there's this. Ah, and she's killed. 12 stabs. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And now she's dead. Okay. That's pretty horrifying. McCoy. I want want you to look at me if you can. Obviously, if you're in the audio version, you're not. Or if you're just watching this on the phone or whatever, you're not. But I'm looking down at the corpse now, okay? There's there's not really a corpse. I'm looking at my keyboard. But then what McCoy does is he looks up from the corpse, not at the camera, but just at a random point in the distance. What happens then is Kirk comes in and poses dramatically and also looks at that exact same point. I remind you, there's nothing there. They're not looking at anything. They're looking at a point the director has said to point at. I hate to comment on weird little things like that, but in an otherwise very excellently constructed episode, especially from a camera and blocking perspective, what the heck are they doing? It was so weird. I rewound the scene just to watch it again to try and track to make sure that they weren't just looking down at the corpse. No, they're just looking at a random spot in the distance. And it's such a weird spot. If they were looking up or whatever, you could kind of see it like, oh my gosh, what's happening? You know, the contemplative look. Or if they're looking right at the camera, well, that would be kind of awkward then. I don't know what they were going for there. Maybe they're looking at each other, or the corpse? Anyways. So then, uh, they bring in Morla and the other guy, and they're like, all right, we need to ask you you a few things. And Morla, interestingly enough, does not actually answer the question. This is more building up to the idea that he's actually the suspect. He flat out does not answer the the, the question put to him by the, the detective dude, Hengist. It's like, okay. This is when the seance happens. It's a pretty dumb scene. I'm just going to move past this. And this leads to his wife being killed. No. The only way to deal with this is death by slow torture. That rule has never been changed. I really hate to ape sci-fi debris because I have a lot of respect for the man. But I, I have a very distinct style and approach to him. But I absolutely agree with him on this point. That is pretty silly. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, all of the old laws we used to have uh, in whatever country you happen to be in. In fact, there's some sites out there that actually keep track of, and there used to be books that keep track of old stupid laws that are still in the books that aren't really enforced. But the, the laws are still there. They've never actually been expunged from the, the books. Or in some cases they have, which is kind of my point. And that's, that's the overall approach here. These people 200 years ago had this awakening and they led to the hedonistic society. But they still have laws from over 200 years ago that say that they will kill you by slow torture if you are a murderer. Huh. I, the only explanation I can give is the people they hired to manage their laws are not very good at their jobs. I suppose I could understand that. We have that problem in real life too. So, as a quick side bit of humor, this isn't—that's not really a a topical joke. That's—that's just been true forever in human history. But I just had a random thought run past my mind. Uh, It's an election year when I'm recording this. I have no idea what the results of that are going to be, obviously, because that's months out from this point. I'm, I'm nowhere near that. We haven't even gotten to actually campaign season yet. I'm just curious how or if things are going to change by the time this video actually goes live, which should be well into next year. Well over a year from now. Anyways. So then we have the courtroom scene. Unfortunately, I don't have much to say about it specifically other than the fact that it's excellent. This is when I really give praise to Pevney and his usage of blocking and camera. This is a very long scene, over 15 minutes actually, which is huge in a 50 minute show counting credits. that is a gargantuan chunk of the episode de- devoted to the courtroom scene. Now, several things are accomplished here. First of all, it saves on budget. <laughs> second of all, by keeping the relative I, I mean mm, let me rewind a second. Second of all, it builds a little bit slowly, but after a jump. So the whole episode, it's been like, it's been Scotty, it's been Scotty, it's been Scotty. And their big argument is, well, he's suffering amnesia from the whole, you know, head wound thing, which is the I present women thing. So they put him in front of the computer, and the computer says, nope, there's even a ta When that happens, everyone's like, wait, what? Everyone's actually legitimately surprised at the idea that, that, that their main theory on what's happening here is completely wrong. So what's happened is all the theories and ideas have just been ejected completely. So now what do they do? Well, then they go through the courtroom scene. Now it's not actually a courtroom scene. That's, that's the weight of it, I think. That's why this works. Courtroom drama can work. It can. You know, I've seen Drumhead. I've seen Measure of Man. I've seen <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird, the original one. But this, this isn't a courtroom drama. This is a mystery thriller. And I know the two obviously blur into each other a lot, but the point is, what they're doing is they're not trying to, you know, grill a suspect or whatever. They're just trying to use the tools that they have, which happens to be in a courtroom, in order to figure out what the heck is going on. Now, this is especially praiseworthy, in my opinion. One of the biggest flaws in an overwhelming amount of fiction, including my own, is the tendency to jump in logic. Why? Well, because you, the writer, know that this is true. So then you look at that from the knowledge that you have and you say, well, of course they would think this from this point because obviously there's this connecting point there, right? It's so logical to see that that I can't even imagine why it wouldn't be. And so we we just write that the characters make that leap. Now the problem is, in many cases, that doesn't work out, especially when there's not really the evidence in character for them to make that logical leap that they otherwise would be making. This can be taken to ludicrous extremes, and I've complained about this a few, few times in, in history uh, for things I've covered where the logical leaps are these gargantuan lunges forward in ways that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. That's not what they do here. In fact, point of fact, what I praise about this episode is each logical jump is a very small step forward. It's probably why the scene is fifteen minutes long, because they actually go through the path. That's why this scene is so engaging, because it actually follows the logical train of deducing what's happening. Well we can guess or debate or whatever, and there are clues for the viewer to do so, which I'll talk about in just a second. The point is the episode is slowly unveiling itself rather than trying to, to prod the viewer in who done it. And I mentioned clues. You notice I haven't talked about Hengist other than to comment on the actor. Very early on, he shows up and he says, we should go to my office to do this. That's, that's a completely ordinary request, sure. Then he objects to the idea of bringing down a tricorder that would actually be able to prove things. Well, that's a little bit less acceptable. Then when Lieutenant Tracy goes down, there's a moment where the camera shows him, and he just looks at her, and he just kind of gives a bit of a smile, like, oh, okay. And he goes on his way. Completely innocuous, or innocuous innocuous in its own right. Then he argues several times against the idea that uh, Scotty is proven guilty. And then, when they start uh, when they start describing the demon, the camera focuses on him for, for a bit, and his expression wonderful praise to the actor by the way slowly gets worse throughout the courtroom scene over 15 minutes. He actually flat out says, I'm satisfied that Mr. Scott is guilty. I am willing to accept the verdict. In other words, let's wrap this up. And he also corrects himself. Someone, some man has murdered these people. And then my personal favorite bit, when they have the reveal, when it actually gets to the reveal thing, he's been getting antsier the whole scene. And the camera keeps jumping back to him. Now, we know this with the advantage of hindsight and knowing what's happening. But the reason the camera's jumping back to him is because it's jumping back to where everyone who isn't the main cast is sitting. All the guest stars are over there on the wall. So we're seeing Javis Jarus. We're seeing Jarus and Hengist over there. But it's only with the advantage of hindsight, or if you're smarter than me, which is extremely easy to be, that you notice that the camera keeps focusing on him and how fidgety he's getting and how more and more and more and more pissed about this whole thing he's getting as he's getting, you know, he's just kind of come on, because they're getting closer and closer to sussing him out. This, of course, leaves to the idea, this this is the final reason why this is all brilliant. Hengist is portrayed as an obstinate bureaucrat, which, if you've been paying attention, is a fairly recurring trend, even already in Trek. I mean, it was in TV in general, but it it was also in Trek. This is not exactly an uncommon thing. So he's being portrayed as just another obstinate bureaucrat, someone who's just kind of in the way of progressing and is effectively the antagonist. This then hides the fact that he is actually the murderer. And the reveal, and when they're like, you know, from, uh, was it Rigel 4 or whatever. Don't you view from Rigel 4? Yeah. And he's just got this pleasant smile on his face, and now the cameras close up on him. Now that the audience is basically picked up, uh, picked up on what's going on, they're like, aha! And then this then leads to... Uh, damn it, I just got a phone call, and I'm trying to ignore it. This then leads to... More and more shots of them putting together the pieces and saying, Hengist, take the stand. Hengist, take the stand. This is from you. Why don't you explain this? And there's this great bit where as it cuts back and forth between them about three or four times, he goes from a light smile and it just very slowly fades. It's almost imperceptible unless you're paying attention. And by the end of it, he's actually kind of looking like he's got this wide-eyed look. And then he gets up and tries to rush out. And it's like, aha! And then we find out he is an energy being. Because, of course, there's a freaking energy being. This is also when we learn the nature of how, I'm going to call him Jack the Ripper for simplicity, actually operates. Hengist is dead. He's been dead. They never say this outright, but Hengist has been dead for a while. Because, you know, the Jack the Ripper could just jump into whatever, or whomever, in order to operate. But it does need a host in order to operate. So it jumps into a person, and the implication is there that what it does is it will kill someone as someone else, then jump into the new body and use that as the new puppet, which is what it's implied exactly what it did with Hengist. In fact, in its previous host, it probably specifically sought out an investigator so that it could then get away with murdering so much easier and just gorge itself on Argelius. Yeah. Now, what's weird is the episode, this is when the threat goes, oh my god, we figured it out, we know what's going on, but the episode does this weird tonal thing where it goes from this big, suspenseful, k- killing thriller mystery thing to kind of wacky antics as they're like, you will all die. They do good modulation with his voice because he doesn't exactly have a terrifying, Piglet does not have a terrifying voice. They do good modulation to make him sound terrifying. And the drugs are amusing. But the, ep- the episode just kind of stumbles forwards a little bit. As it's like, hey, and they get on the turbolift, which I don't, can't even imagine why they would get on a turbolift when, when an evil entity is controlling the ship, but let's not get into that. And they put everyone on drugs. They call them tranquilizers. Um, I, I've been on tranquilizers before. Uh, that looks a lot more like happy pills to me. Like, just yikes. I don't, I don't know if that was an intentional uh, misnomer, or maybe they changed it to tranks so that they didn't look like they were, you know, encouraging drug use, I don't know, this feels like a censorship, or the censors getting involved kind of a situation, I don't know, either way, they feel the need to explain that, what Pi is, I don't even know what that's all about, and then finally, there's this one nice last bit, and again, praise to the director, so, Jack the Ripper's still in the computer, and Jarvis is there, And then it stops, and they announce that it stops. And that moment, Jarrus just goes still and is actually facing away from the camera. Stock still. I actually didn't notice this until like my fourth or fifth time watching this episode as he's just standing there. Until finally they're like, okay, we'll do this and this and this. We'll give this thing to Bones and we'll move on. Okay, Jarrus. And that's when he reveals himself. But he's been standing like that the whole scene. It's a nice little touch. This is also another first for Star Trek history. The first time we've used a transporter as a weapon. Now, I bring this up because this is something that's old hat by Modern Trek. The transporter actually has a ridiculous amount of utility for a ridiculous amount of things. But the idea of beaming something out just into energy, in other words, dispersing it, dispersing its pattern rather than recohesing it, was never actually mentioned until this episode. And now, that is now part of canon, which means now we have a mega death weapon on board the Enterprise and will, in every Star Trek episode after this point, And it will basically never be used like that. Ever. The episode ends. I know a bar. Never mind. Light, happy music. We've defeated Jack the Ripper, who is portrayed effectively as a demon, so we had at least one unique demon back on Earth, and aliens which showed up, which called themselves the Greek gods. That's... How many other things have been back on Earth in history at this point who are godlike aliens or energy beings or whatever? Jeez. That's all I've got, ladies and gentlemen. I do hope you enjoyed. I'll see you next time.